Even though it can be tough around here, sometimes God gives you little gifts to get you through the day. You're gonna wanna grab a mop. Josh, watching the sixth sense. There's a mess in the hallway. This kid sees dead people. That film is at least five years old. So what? I haven't seen it. Bruce Willis is a ghost. He's been dead the entire time. <gasps> All the best. No! No! Oh, every year the med students get me with a practical joke. They messed with the speed control on my treadmill. What I can't figure is how they got into my office. Here's the key to counselor's office. And here is Nurse Tisdale's phone number. I don't have any idea how they might have gotten in here, Bob, but I can tell you this. If you think I'm missing the biggest game in the year, you got another thing. I hate to interrupt you, but I'm still feeling a little woozy from being shot into my wall like a lawn dart. So why don't you just go work your shift and use my VCR to tape the game? Listen up. I have been cursed to work the night shift with you chuckleheads, which means I have to tape the Laker Heat game. If you utter a word about the score of the game, it will be your last. Now get out. Go, 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 go. Chop, chop. What drives people to seek revenge? So, you don't want to know the ending of something. I can relate to that. Oh, now it's time to ruin the game. Come with me to the window. Why? Would you have some elaborate plan? I do, as a matter of fact. I convinced everybody in this hospital that's afraid of me to go outside and spell out the score of the game. Really? No, you idiot. I'm just going to tell you the score of the game. Maybe knock your head against the glass. Look, I was way out of line telling you how that movie ended, but God save me. Watching sports is one of the last pure pleasures I have left in my life. So you, you tell me, what's it gonna take if you let me go home, sit in my massage chair, and enjoy the game? I would like to perform open heart surgery. No. How about you perform surgery on me so that I can breathe underwater? No. I would like a shark that can read minds. No. You and I trade lives for a year. No. How about a home-cooked meal and an hour in your massage chair? Done. Done. It's finally here, the long-awaited showdown between Shaq and Kobe. Sometimes the bad guy is the man you've been battling with for as long as you can remember. Hey, Perry, 98-97 Lakers. Kobe dunked over Shaq for the game winner. Don't ever mess with my treadmill. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad you've decided to join us uh, for worship today. Go ahead and raise your hand if you're not a huge fan of spoilers. The people who tell you how the game ends or the book ends or the movie ends before you get a chance to watch it. Yeah, I think that's most of us. One of our core values at Hope, uh, following Jesus is a growing experience, which means there's always a next step of growth for every single one of us. Doesn't matter how old we are, doesn't matter how long we've been following after Jesus. We never arrive, there's always a next step of growth. And one of the ways God has been growing me the last, I don't know, decade or so, is this idea of spoilers. I think a lot of you know I am a huge college football fan. And when you are a pastor of a church that has a five o'clock Saturday worship service, sometimes that overlaps with the game that you would like to watch. And so back in the day when I was much, much 
more immature than I am now, I would, my way of dealing with this was I didn't want to know anything. I'm going to stay away from the radio and the TV. I'm going to turn my phone off. I don't want my friends or my brother texting me any kinds of updates. I want to get home after church not knowing anything about the game. But inevitably, I would come to the 5 o'clock service and someone would come up to me and say, boy, kind of a rough start to that game, huh? (laughs) Or, wow, can you believe how well they're playing? And, And they would spoil the outcome. And when I was immature, my response to that might not have been very Christ-like. But what I've, been, what I've been doing lately is just like, bring it on. Tell me. I want to know everything. I don't turn anything off. Updates all along the way. It's just fine. And I find out I actually like it better because if my favorite team is playing terribly and there's no chance and, and they, by the time I get done with church, I know, already know that they've lost, it saves me three hours of my day. And, and it's one of those, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there, does it make a sound? If my favorite team loses, but I don't watch it, did it really happen? No, it didn't, it didn't even happen. And, and the flip is true. If they win, and I know before I see the game that they have won, what an enjoyable game-watching experience. I don't have to get anxious. I don't have to yell at the coaches for making terrible calls. I mean, you just, I know that they win in the end. It's great. You're not buying any of it, are you? Yeah. So most of us, we don't want, we we would prefer a spoiler alert. We want to be able to read the book or watch the movie or watch the game not knowing how it's going to end. What if it's actually better for us if we do know? Researchers at the University of California, San Diego have been taking a look at this question. Do things really get spoiled if we don't get a spoiler alert? And what they've discovered is actually no. People prefer to know how it ends before they get there. Here's what one of the researchers says. Once you know how it turns out, it's cognitively easier. You're more comfortable processing the information and can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. So what they did in the study, they got a bunch of people together who had not read some of classic literature, some some books that have these twists, plot twists, and And so some of the group, they just had them read through it. Others, before they had them read through it, they told them, here's what's going to happen. And they explained some of the stuff to them. And what they found was a whole lot cognitively easier to process the plot twists when you've already been told kind of what's going on. Then you can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. Of course, that gets us to the book of Revelation. Uh, This year at Hope, our theme has been 12 books in 12 months, each month a different book of the Bible. This is the last month of the year. We're focusing in on the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And one of the messages of the book of Revelation is to tell us, here's how the story ends. I want us to read this passage together from Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And passages like this occur more than once throughout the book of Revelation. This idea that a day is coming, a time is coming, when things are going to be, let's throw out the word perfect, that God is going to be on the throne, that the Lamb will be reigning, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be reigning, that that God's people will be led 
by Jesus. We'll follow wherever he goes, and there'll be no more hunger or thirst or death or pain or tears. The message of the book of Revelation is not just, here's how the Bible ends. It's, here's how everything ends. And the fancy sort of theological term for this is the eschaton. Eschaton is a Greek word. It literally means last. So eschatology is the study of what will happen in the last days. When I was 24 years old, I was in my first job in ministry. I was a director of youth ministry at a church in Des Moines. I was dating my wife, Wendy. We were going to be married about a year later. And we had a friend, a couple friend, Andrew and Camille. And one Saturday, the four of us got together because Andrew, uh, Andrew's now a pastor at a church in Knoxville. Andrew and I thought, somebody should have figured out this book of Revelation by now. And so let's get together, let's take a Saturday, and we'll put a couple hours in, and we'll just figure this thing out. So we had the Bible, we had commentaries, we had books on the end times. Most importantly, we had a flip chart and markers so that we can make drawings and timelines and that sort of thing. Uh, Wendy and Camille weren't very interested in that. They went and did something productive. But Andrew and I, for a couple of hours that Saturday afternoon, we tried to just, we're going to figure it out. What do all these signs and symbols mean? What are they pointing to? When will all of these events happen? When is Jesus going to come again? Never mind that Jesus himself says, nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or the hour, not even me, Jesus says, not even the son, only the father knows. And so Andrew and I had a great Saturday digging into uh, the word of God, but for the most part, we missed the point because the point of the book of Revelation The point of the study of the eschaton, the last days, the point is not to figure out when will the end come. The point is to develop the kind of faith where you can believe whenever the end comes, it will be good. God's going to be on the throne. God's home is going to be with God's people. No more death, no more tears, no more pain. All will be well. All will be well. I wonder if we could say that phrase out loud together. Say this with me. All will be well. I know for some people it's the holiday season. We're what, halfway between Thanksgiving and and Christmas now. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Things are going great in your life. This is a time where it's kind of easy for you to say, all will be well. But I know for others of you that's just not the case. That's not the season you're in. I was on the phone Friday afternoon with a guy from our church. He was driving up to his hometown to go to the hospital to sit by his father's bedside while his dad died. I know so many people in this congregation recently have received diagnoses that are scary, troubling, that it's not even easy for you to say this phrase, but to think, to believe that this phrase is true given the circumstances that you're going through right now, that's a very difficult thing. And yet the message of the book of Revelation is to remind us, to tell us, to point us to this reality, here's how it will all end. And when we know how it ends, it actually can get us to a place where we can maybe possibly be able to say something like this. When we know who controls tomorrow, we are free to surrender control today. When we know who controls tomorrow, we are free to surrender control of today. Um, Whether you are 
aware enough to admit it or not. Most of us are control freaks. We live our lives day to day under this illusion that we are in control. The reality is we're not in control. And let's just remind ourselves, turn to someone close to you and just tell them, you're not in control. Kids, this will be really fun for you. Turn to your parents, you're not in control. Just remember, just remember, you're not in control either. Our belief around this idea of control is pretty important when it comes to living a life of faith. Because a big part of what it means to be a person of faith is to believe, I am not in control, and that's actually a good thing. God is in control, and that's a really good thing. But how many of us, how many of us, we go through life with this illusion of being in control, and, and one of the great privileges that I have as a pastor, I get to walk with people where sometimes for the very first time in their life, they have to come face to face with this reality that they're not in control, that there's no, they have no power, there's nothing they can do to fix whatever it is that's going on in their life that they want to fix. If you haven't come to that place in your life yet, trust me on this one, you will one day. And, and the way that we respond to this news, and we have to respond to it at some point in our life, this news that we are not the ones in control, this has everything to do with faith. Faith in God. Uh, we have a ministry here at Hope called Celebrate Recovery. Meets every Monday night here at the Ankeny campus, every Thursday night at the West Des Moines campus. Celebrate Recovery is a Christ-centered recovery program. Focuses in and incorporates the principles of the 12 steps but it also has eight recovery principles that are connected to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to read through the first three recovery principles of Celebrate Recovery. As I'm reading through them, I want you, of course, to listen to the words, pay attention to the words, but maybe even more importantly, pay attention to what's going on inside you as we read through these ideas. It, it, are these ideas that you welcome or as we read through this, do you find yourself kind of resisting these ideas? Recovery principle number one, realize I'm not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. It correlates to step one of the 12 steps. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount feeds into this. God blesses those, Jesus says, who are poor and realize their need for him. Some translations, Jesus says, God blesses the poor in spirit. Recovery principle number two. Earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. Correlates with step two of the 12 steps. And this is uh, the beatitude, right? Blessed are those, Jesus says, God blesses those who mourn. And maybe you're like, what does this have to do with mourning? When we're going through life convinced we're in control, we end up gripping the wheel really, really, really hard trying to maintain control. And in that process, we lose things. Sometimes our grip trying to maintain control causes us to lose relationships. Sometimes it causes us to lose jobs. And anytime we lose something... There's grief that is involved. We have to mourn what we have lost. Sometimes what we have lost is our relationship with God because we've put ourselves in the place of God. And so the second principle 
is this idea of mourning. Recovery principle number three. Consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and Christ's control. Step three of the 12 steps, Jesus says, God blesses those who are humble. How do you receive those ideas? Do you welcome it? Does it ring true for you? Is there something in you that's just like, I don't know if that's for me. Uh, And there's a lot going on in there, a lot to unpack there. Here's the way I kind of summarize it. I can't, God can, I'll let go. How about we all say that together? I can't, God can, I'll let go. And so one of the things I love about the people who come to celebrate recovery, and and hopefully you've noticed as we go through those principles, it's not just recovery from drug or alcohol addictions. It's recovery from whatever it is in our life that we use to maintain control. And what I love about the people who come to celebrate recovery, they've finally gotten fed up with living with the illusion. I'm tired of trying and trying and trying to maintain control when I actually don't have the power to do that. And so instead of gripping the wheel tighter and tighter, they're letting go and they're turning to God, understanding God in the power of God. That's the only source of help and hope that they can trust, that has the power to actually change anything. And as I'm thinking about this, it actually makes me think of what's going on in Revelation chapter 7, where John sees this vast crowd of people. And it says it's people from every nation, every tribe, every language, all cultures are represented. They're all wearing white robes and they're all praising God, worshiping God with everything they have because they know. It's not a belief, it is this deep knowledge. They know that God is their only source of help and hope. I found this picture, and it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of our vision at Hope that we unveiled at the beginning of November, this vision for the next decade. Who does God want us to be? Where is God taking us? Let's read this out loud together. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. I can't bring Christ to all cultures. I can't revive the world with God's love. I can't make heaven more crowded. I can't but God can. And and the way God has chosen to do this is through the church, through the body of Christ. As we work together, as we serve together, as we minister together, watch what God can do. I don't know if you've noticed, but our church is getting more and more crowded all the time. Uh, Saturday mornings is usually one of those times in the week where our church is pretty quiet. I often come in on Saturday mornings just to get some work done and, and finish up some things before the, the weekend uh, worship services. So yesterday morning I drove to church about 10 o'clock I got here and you would have thought it was the 915 worship. There was not a place to park. There was so much going on at this church on a Saturday morning I had a hard time finding a place to park. This place is getting more and more crowded all the time. We actually think that is a good thing. And at the same time, we're trying to make more room for more people. So a year ago, we started this campaign, Building to a Hope Beyond. Three-year giving campaign, trying to add about 20,000 square feet of space to our facility here. $5 million project, and we want to do it debt-free. And so I just want to kind of give you an update where we stand now. 
Uh, here's a glass container, and this glass container, I don't know if you can see it on, on the screen or not. There it is, yeah. The glass container, it represents kind of financially where we are with building to a hope beyond. So a year ago, we asked you uh, one year, a one-time gift or a three-year pledge, and faithfully and generously, the congregation gave just over each of these, this is one million, two million, three million, just over three million dollars this congregation gave, which is great and awesome, and you can still see there's a little bit to go. Oh, this container, it's a $5 million project. The container doesn't represent 5 million, it represents 4.5. Cuz 4.5 is what it would take for us to actually start. Uh, start moving dirt. We wouldn't be able to finish the lower level and we wouldn't be able to do the the whole project, but 4.5 we could start. So, all through the month of November, we asked you again to consider a one-time gift or maybe a two-year pledge since we're in year 2 of this 3-year campaign. And I mean, I'm the pastor I'm the faith guy, right? So I'm also a numbers guy. And we do this all the time. So five years ago when we did the campaign for this building, in year two we asked for a re-up and we got about $100,000 when we did that. And so uh, last last month I thought maybe, I don't know, $200,000, maybe $300,000 if God really showed off. Uh, And so I I just kind of did this soft, like, just pray about it, kind of like what we're doing with the socks. We're not saying, here's the day you bring the socks. We're saying all month long, whenever you want to, bring the socks. And that's, that's what we did with the giving for last year, uh, month. So I want to update you now, uh, right, 300,000 will be God showing off. We'll just see where we are. Does that make sense? I'll pour water into it and stop. Are you guys ready for this? <laughs> all right. One person is. Eli's ready. There we go. It's three and a half million. There we go, we're getting to four million. And, oh, I'm burning my elbow. (laughs) Let's stop right there. People, over a million dollars came in in one month. (laughs) I I don't think you understand how ridiculous that is. That's completely ridiculous. I can't, God can, we'll let go of this thing. But here's what I want you to know. (laughs) Look how stinking close we are. We have closed, the, you have closed the gap significantly. And so, you smell that? It almost smells like dirt moving, doesn't it? <laughs> so, in November, because I, your faithful pastor, thought we might get 100 or 200,000, I didn't tell you when to give. Um, here's what I want to say today pray, pray, continue to ask God. Is God nudging you to give, one time gift, two year pledge? But if you have the sense that God is nudging you to give, I'm confident in telling you, God wants you to give by December 31st. <laughs> right? God wants you to give before the end of the year. I'd love to stand up here the first weekend of January and say, we hit that mark and we're hiring contractors and, and we're ready to go. We're making more room. This is who God is calling us to be. Uh, praise God one more time for the generosity of this congregation. It, it absolutely blows me away and is, is so inspiring. I, I am so excited about what God is doing here, and I'm, I hope that you're excited to be a part of it. What is God going to do in the next decade? Let's keep our eyes open and see. Back to the book of Revelation. Vast crowd of people worshiping God from every culture, and John asks, John asks, who are these people? The answer he gets in verse 17 These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. 
Now, if you were to do a Google search for Great Tribulation or end times tribulation. It's going to take you to a lot of articles and a lot of images that are sort of these timelines and drawings and pictures and charts of everybody has a different kind of interpretation or understanding of how the book of Revelation plays out. But part of what is included in it is things like a tribulation, a a millennium, a beast and what's the mark of the beast and all kinds of numbers and signs and symbols and bowls and seals that are getting opened and what does all of this mean? Are we pre-millennial or post-millennial or millennial? And remember what Pastor Mike says at Hope, we're pan-millennial. We believe it's all going to pan out in the end, which is kind of funny and perhaps a little bit trite, but it's also a very biblical way of, of thinking about end times. God's got it. God's in control. And so the Greek word that gets translated tribulation is flipsis. And flipsis shows up several times in the New Testament outside of the book of Revelation. And sometimes it gets translated, instead of tribulation, it gets translated trouble or sorrow or trial. Anybody going through anything that's troubling these days? Anyone experiencing any sorrow or or going through something, the best description that you have for it is, it's just a trial in my life. What's your typical way of responding to trouble, to trials, to sorrow? If you're like me, it's to grip that wheel tighter and tighter and tighter. Try to maintain control when it feels like life is out of control. What if we could develop a different strategy? What if we could learn to surrender control to the almighty power of God? Uh, scholars aren't in 100% agreement on this, but a lot of scholars believe the John who writes the book of Revelation is the John who writes the gospel of John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And if you start looking in the gospel of John towards the end of it, John and the other disciples are experiencing a lot of trouble a lot of trials, a lot of sorrow. It starts in chapter 13 where Jesus gathers them for the Last Supper and part of that meal, Jesus identifies Judas as the one who will betray him and Peter as the one who will deny him. It it creates a lot of troubled spirits in that room and amongst the disciples. You turn the page to chapter 14 and Jesus says to his troubled disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me but they're having a hard time doing it. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe Jesus is the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. And so cognitively, they're having a very difficult time processing this information that Jesus has just given him that he's going to die. How does it make sense that Jesus is going to die? And so what does Jesus do to help them process this information? He tells them what's going to happen next. He reminds them, here's how it all ends. Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to rise again. Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. Jesus is not going to leave his disciples orphaned or abandoned. He's going to leave them with a gift, he says in verse 26. Remember the gift Jesus promises his disciples? Next slide. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Again, Am I in control or is God in control? And when we believe we are the ones in control, when life starts to get out of control, we go looking for whatever the world offers us as a way to get control back, 
Jesus is really clear here. The world doesn't have anything that can help your life get back into control. Jesus offers the only solution. The peace of Jesus, a gift the world cannot give you. That's what can help you when you're going through troubling or scary circumstances in your life. And it's still troubling to the disciples. Yes, great, I don't understand this gift. And Jesus just keeps talking to them. Remember how much I love you. Remember how the story is going to end. Talking and talking all through chapter 14, all through chapter 15. And it's interesting, none of the disciples, at least it's not recorded in the Gospels, none of the disciples cover their ears and go, la, 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 I don't want to know, I don't want to know. Spoiler alert. They want to know. They need to know how it all ends. And so by the time you get to chapter 16, Jesus tells them, here's why I'm telling you all of this stuff. Chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says, I'm telling you this so you don't abandon your faith. These disciples are some of the most faithful men who've ever lived. I'm telling you this so you don't abandon your faith. When we go through these times of trials and trouble, that's our great temptation. When life's not going the way we want it to go, when God's not answering our prayers the way we want God to answer our prayers, our temptation is to lose faith, abandon faith. And Jesus says, new strategy, remember how it all ends. When you know who controls tomorrow, it sets you free to surrender control today. Who controls tomorrow? The one who's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. The God who is born in a manger and dies on a cross and the power of God's love raises him to new life. The one who says to his disciples at the end of John 16, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Same word in John 16, 33 that shows up in Revelation 7 for tribulation. You cannot get through this life without going through a great tribulation. But spoiler alert, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. I've overcome any trouble, any trial, any sorrow this world can throw at you, including death. When you know, when you know who controls tomorrow, it sets you free to surrender control of today. I can't. God can. I'll let go. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together as we get ready to sing our closing song. So Lord, uh, we come to you and, and we just confess all the ways in our lives that we try to maintain control by our own strength and our own power. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the faith to surrender, to trust you, to trust your plan, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Help us to remember how the story ends. You're on the throne. You win. And ultimately, all will be well. We want to look to you. We want to worship you. We want to praise you as people who know you are the only source. You are the only power that can help us, that can save us, that can set us free from our troubled spirits, our troubled hearts, our troubled minds. Lord, help us fix our eyes on you and your love and your grace for us that is eternal. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.